Grab your trowel and a cup of coffee. You're listening to Archeo Cafe. I'm your host, Otis Crandell. Welcome to another episode of Archeo Cafe. I'm Otis, and today I'm talking with Bruce Bradley from the University of Exeter, currently in Colorado, USA. Welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you very much. It's great to have you here today. Happy to be here. <laughs> Tell me, what first got you interested in archaeology? Oh, I guess it goes way back to when I was a, a little kid. Um, I was really interested in, in snakes and lizards and things, wanted to be herpetologist. Hmm. But I also had, I grew up in Michigan. There wasn't much exposure of artifacts or anything like that on the surface. But I was part of an organization which was run through the um, YMCA. And so we sort of, it was like kind of scouts, Boy Scouts, except it was through the YMCA. Mm-hmm. And one time we went and, and visited a collector, an artifact collector. He actually had to be, he was a grave digger and the, mm-hmm. the cemetery was on the terrace above the river. So it was, a, <laughs> it was an old village. So oh. he had this huge collection. I got really interested in arrowheads and, and that carried through. I, I couldn't mm-hmm. really express it in any way, although I tried making arrowheads and things when I was a kid. It had no success whatsoever. But um, so that sort of carried through. And then when we moved to uh, Tucson, outside of Tucson, Arizona, when I was in high school, and I was out looking for snakes and lizards and kept finding artifacts uh, because on the desert, they're just exposed. And that got me started. And then I went to the University of Arizona in anthropology, wanting to do archaeology. And that's basically where it came from. So if you had actually encountered some snakes and lizards, then today you could be a herpetologist instead of an archaeologist. Well, yes, except that when I I actually looked into that when I went to university and I had to take all these hard science things like biology and and physics and chemistry and all that to do it. And I said, nah, Mm -hmm. no, I'm more interested in artifacts. (laughs) So that's that's where I went. Oh, that's fortunate. What would you say is the most interesting place that you've done field work, or at least one of the most interesting? Yeah, this this is this is a really difficult question because interesting, everything's very interesting to me. I mean, it doesn't matter what time period yeah. or where it is. But if you would say the most um, challenging, extreme, um, most memorable, I'd, I'd say Zhokov Island, which is in, in polar Siberia. Uh, excavation on a 8,500-year-old site up there. Oh. Um, and that that was extremely interesting, probably the most difficult archaeology I've been involved with, and yet the, some of the most interesting because it had total preservation. It's in permafrost. Um, everything's preserved, feathers, everything. And we found 8,500-year-old uh, wooden oh. bowls and and nets and baskets and pieces of sleds and and hide clothing etc etc so in some ways that was the most interesting now that's not something that i sort of took on as a research issue i just was up there for for five weeks with a crew uh because i was invited to come along um and look at the primarily at the stone artifacts that they had and did did write up some of that with a russian colleague uh, but it wasn't a long-term research thing for me. But I'll tell you what, it was pretty interesting and extreme. And the other extreme was I didn't actually work there, but I consulted a little bit, was in the Atacama Desert in Chile. And it's about the opposite extreme, and yet it has it has <laughs> the same, the same, same sort of situation with preservation and all because of its dryness. So we had... A permafrost in the north with no bacteria because it's too too cold and, and mm-hmm. etc. And then you have the Atacama down in South America, which is totally dry uh, and no bacteria because it's too salty. So the preservation issue is at the extremes. So I, I, I think that pretty much manages to give you the range <laughs> of where I've been done stuff. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's always a, a bit of a treat to find organic materials at an archaeological site because, I mean, they're the first things to go. And, you know, unless you're looking in the permafrost or some of these ice patches up in the mm-hmm. Arctic or in places that are so dry or we're in bogs or something. Right. They're not common at all. So it's it's really 
a bit of a treat to actually find these organic materials. And I think the one or two artifacts tells us so much about the past because they're so uncommonly preserved. Right. This this is true, and it also yeah. gives you a little humility when you're looking at our ar- uh, archaeological sites that don't have organic preservation, mm-hmm. realizing we're looking at probably less than 5% of the of the material culture of these people and trying to make sense out of it, um, which which is another aspect of, of sort of understanding when we're looking at, you know, uh, Paleo-American mm-hmm. stuff and all we have is, is stone artifacts and some bones. I mean, we're really looking at such a small, small fraction of what it was all about. And yeah. Right. Well, I think it's as well when we're looking at things like the Paleolithic, where we've been two million years back, and there's not much there other than you know the stones, or sometimes you'll find fossils. But but clearly the people must have been doing non you know stone related activities and having non stone objects. But yeah, we have to sort of think about okay, we've only got a small portion of what they had. Yeah, very small, very small. And the other thing is there's new evidence that we may have had people in the Americas that didn't actually have a stone technology. And what is that Hmm. going to leave behind for us to find as archaeologists? I mean, it makes a huge, huge difference in perspective. (laughs) Yeah, well, there was people in uh, Asia who were using bamboo. I mean, bamboo is really nice for making cutting tools, but that that just doesn't preserve Right, I mean, exactly. You might get some traces, you might get the phytoliths and other stuff, but mm-hmm. yeah, it's not like a, a flint knife, but just as equally useful. But Right, exactly. Yeah. Look, a controversial topic in American archaeology at present is that of the peopling of the Americas. And until recently, there was a general view that people crossed the Bering Land Bridge and then spread into North America more or less about 13,000 years ago. So there was basically one origin, one migration. But over the last few decades, there's been a growing amount of evidence to suggest that there may have been earlier migrations and more than one origin. So first of all, what are some of the evidences against the Clovis first hypothesis? Well, well basically, there's... A, a whole group of uh, archaeological sites and evidence from those sites now that the, the fir- very first thing about them is they're in good context and they have dates that are pre-Clovis, that are older than Clovis, as we say. Um, mm-hmm. And they're all over the place now. They're not just not just one like Monte Verde in Chile, but there's lots and lots and lots of these sites. Mm-hmm. Um some of which, uh, almost all of which are, are contended. I mean, which is fine. I mean, that's part of archaeology, part of science is that you critique things. Yeah. Uh, but there are sites in South America, Central America, North America, High Arctic. They're all over the place now that have dates. And some of these dates are um, back to 30,000 years ago um, and it, or even 130,000 years ago in one case. And, and, and all of these things are... Are, are highly challenged, and they should be, just like any archaeological site and any date on an archaeological site needs to be critiqued. Whether it's older than Clovis or not, it's kind of irrelevant. This is what we do. But there's a, a, a growing um, inventory of these sites, that, that it, and, and it's, it's hard for me to understand why there's such a resistance to the acceptance of some of these sites. Mm-hmm. And, and then, of course, we've got archaeological evidence of artifact types and things like this, but really boils down to if it's going to be older than Clovis, it's got to have an older than Clovis date, either a geological context or direct dating. And there's plenty of them. Well, considering the growing evidence of earlier dated pre-Clovis sites, why do some people adhere so strongly to the Clovis first Bering Land Bridge hypothesis? How do they explain the earlier sites? Well, this this is an interesting thing. Um, I don't really quite understand why there's such a resistance. Although there's, I have some ideas. In very specific cases, I can see some political or some other reasons to be resistant to things older than Clovis, but. Um, it's, 
it's kind of the way science works, unfortunately. You have paradigms that are developed, accepted. They become dogma. That dogma is really, really mm -hmm. hard to change. People's careers are built on it. Uh, we've seen this. In, I mean, this is just science in general. This happens all the time. Science doesn't yeah. go, you know, in a steady steady stream of, of, of uh, change as you go along. You hit plateaus. Things become dogma. They get so in, ingrained mm -hmm. that it's so difficult for people to, to see another perspective. I mean, plate tectonics is a classic example in our time, oh, yeah. uh, which, you know, back, back in the sixties, when I was at university of Arizona doing geology as a minor, I mean, plate tectonics in geology was considered a nutty idea by a kook. And this is what we were taught. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, there was such resistance to the concept. Yeah. And of course we've seen what happened there. Now it's gone so far the other way that everything is plate tectonics, which is probably also not accurate. But uh, so it's not unique to, to archaeology. It, I think it's a, a science thing, but it's also a science academic thing. People are very, very resistant mm -hmm. to to major changes. And um, we, I, I hear statements like, well, extraordinary claims demand extraordinary evidence. And it's like, well, who defines what's an extraordinary claim? Um, well, self-appointed experts define that, and um, and sometimes not, you know, accepted experts define what's extraordinary. But the bottom line is, evidence is evidence, and we have methodology to to evaluate evidence. And it doesn't shouldn't matter whether it's evidence of a hundred thirty thousand year old thing or a ten thousand year old thing or a twenty thousand year old thing or a, 150,000, mm. you know, whatever, it doesn't matter. The evidence should stand mm. by itself and we should be using the same criteria to evaluate archaeological uh, evidence. And some people just don't seem to be able to grasp that. And, and I don't think it's malicious or in any way motivated by um, self-interest in a way. Uh, I, I think it's just very, very difficult in, especially in an academic setting, to be able to change. I mean, <laughs> I guess that's about the only explanation I have. Now, what you asked how how they challenge it, or how they explain yeah. some of these these things? Well, they explain these sites by yeah. saying, "Well, I don't buy the dating." The dating isn't in good context. The charcoal that you have mm -hmm. came from the soil; it didn't come from a hearth. Um, uh, the artifacts aren't really artifacts, they're natural. And it, and it goes on and on and on. And those are all legitimate critiques if they can evidence it. And this is part of the problem that I see with, with this whole process is that people that are making what quote, quote unquote an extraordinary claim are expected to evidence things down to the minus, minor little detail. You got to prove everything absolutely with with extraordinary accuracy, but somebody challenging it just has mm. to say, "I don't buy the date." They don't have to. We don't demand that they use the same intensity of evidence and argument. Right. And so, um, I, actually, people get away with challenging things without using the, the scientific method. I mean, it's this is. Again, it's it's endemic in in academia, I'm afraid. So yeah, you know, I think there's also the question of do certain things merit being investigated? And I think that when you get a a large amount of small evidences, then it's these are not isolated things, and it's it indicates that well, maybe it's maybe the idea is right, maybe it's wrong, but definitely it should be investigated. And I think. That's where I think also some people run into a bit of an obstacle that some topics are considered, you know, oh, that's that's too crazy. It mm. shouldn't even be investigated. But right. when you get an accumulation of even small evidences, well, then it's it's suggesting that there may be something else going on that with the with the mainstream idea that we need to investigate. And it may turn out to be well, there was a simple explanation, but without you know investigating it. You know, you're not going to find that. Yes, absolutely. I mean, an extreme uh, of that sort of situation is a very well-respected, well-known archaeologist was asked by, I think, a media person about an archaeological site that was being dug. 
and and they asked, well, you got Clovis. What did you find below? We said, well, we didn't dig below because we know there's nothing going to be there. <laughs> okay, I mean that was this. This is a real instance, and it was like, okay then why are we doing archaeology? I mean, what's what's the point? If we already know what we're going to find, mm. why do we keep doing it? So, I mean, yes, uh, we, we need to explore extraordinary ideas, if, if that's the term that people want to use. And yes, most of the time, these things are going to be explained away some other, some other you know, however. But if we don't continue to push those envelopes and keep looking for things that we might suspect could be there, I mean, it, we'll never find them. I mean, if you don't look for them, you're not going to find yeah, them. True. True. So, yeah. Or if you find them and you don't uh, have an open enough mind to say, well, could this be? And you're just saying, well, that can't be, therefore it isn't. And, and boy, have we yeah, run into that a, a lot. We've run into that a lot where people say, well, look, it, it can't be there. Um, and so therefore it isn't real and therefore we're not going to pay attention to it. And, and and we've lost a lot of really good early, older than Clovis sites because of this attitude. One hypothesis that you've written about regarding peopling of the Americas is the Salutrian hypothesis. Could you briefly give us an overview of this hypothesis? Certainly. When did this potential Salutrian migration occur? What route and means of travel did it take? Yeah, certainly. Um, the hypothesis was developed, again, based on uh, certain areas of evidence. And this is what I, it's hard to get across sometimes to people. That hypothesis is not uh, something where we're explaining something as truth. A hypothesis is you've got some evidence, you try to explain that evidence, you come up with ideas about how you might explain that evidence, you develop a hypothesis, and then that gets tested. And most of the time it changes, it gets rejected, whatever it is. Or it, 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 you, if you don't find things that, uh, that challenge the evidence to the point of rejection, then maybe you're, it's supporting it. So what our hypothesis, Dennis Stanford and I, and, and some other people that were involved in this, uh, have looked at evidence and said, boy, we think there's a possibility that people may have originated in North America, at least partly from southwestern, what's now southwestern Europe um, and the Iberian Peninsula because of the similarities of artifacts, dating, etc., that we're seeing. And so the hypothesis is that people living in, in the glacial maximum time period which is 20 to 17,000 years ago. You can stretch it a couple thousand on each end of that. Living in, in the coastal regions of uh, Iberia, which would be the base of the Pyrenees around the Bay, uh, the, the bay of Biscay, um, were developing uh, maritime uh, attributes in their culture. Uh, it's, it's really hard to make a living on land because of the glacial period. But the sea is right there. They're living right on the sea, basically. And there's all this incredible resource. And so our idea is that people started to exploit that resource, developed te technologies to allow that to happen, including boats, uh, small boats of some sort uh, and maritime uh, resources. And through time, they expanded out onto the ice, uh, which moved annually uh, north and south. It fluctuated north and south during the glacial maximum. And as these, as they became better at using these resources, they expanded their hunting territories out into the North Atlantic along the ice and on the ice. And eventually some of them hit land. They, they, they encountered land on the other side of the ice. Um, and at that point, the, what we're seeing is, is a development of a hunting territory that includes the whole North Atlantic ice front and tethered at both sides on land. So we've got, it's not, people use the term migration. We're not talking about a migration where everybody picked up and jumped into boats and paddled across the ocean. What we're talking about is expanding a territory into an area that's very rich in, in resources uh, during a particular time period. And through time, uh, eventually the glacial maximum subsided, uh, the glacial retreat, the expansion of, of the land again, the rising of the sea level again, 
it became unfeasible to continue that lifestyle on the North Atlantic. But at the same time, there were art, there were people established in North America. Okay. So mm. it, it's not, it's, it's not a migration in the sense of all the folks left one place and went to another. Right. It, it's an expanded territory where people basically, they get isolated and then they manage to, by that time, they've had a viable genetic population and they start spreading down and using coastal resources. And then as the coast uh, is is disappearing by rising sea levels, they move inland up the rivers, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and they end up populating parts of eastern North America and eventually South America. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the hypothesis. And we have presented our arguments and our data in a, in a book where we went and called Across Atlantic Ice. We went through and presented all of our evidence at that point in time. And by the uh, 2012, I think, is when we published that. Um, and we continue to look at new evidence, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And other people have come in and started to, to develop you know, counter hypotheses, et cetera, but basically uh, with the same base. Um, now, it doesn't preclude other populations and other times and other places coming from other places. This is not meant to be an exclusive. This is where everybody in North America came from. Right. Um, so I, that, that's also been, we've been sort of accused of saying, oh, everybody came from, from yeah. there and et cetera, et cetera. No, that's not the case. So that's the basic idea. One of the earliest links in the archaeological literature between Solutrean culture in the Paleolithic Europe and the Clovis culture in North America are the Knapp stone techniques. Could you tell us what the connection is and how are these two techniques similar? Okay, sure. Uh, it, it's actually very, very complicated. It's, it's, um, it, again, it tends to get simplified and oversimplified, but uh, yeah. we, we looked at, you know, comparing Solutrean. Now, I, I want to Make, put in a caveat here about what what was Salutrian. It's not a single thing. It's not a single cultural uh, phenomenon that has one uh, assemblage of artifacts and one set of technologies. It's the same through time and space. It covered about a 5,000 year time period, changed in regional variations. We've got different types of things, different technologies. Uh, and so we've got these regional variations and any one of those could be the, the what we can think of as the, the origin of, of North American Salutrian. Um, but we're looking at a set of technologies and, and stone types or stone tool types. Uh, and we looked in, and when we did our comparison, we looked at 41 different traits and compared 41 different traits through all the upper Paleolithic cultures in Asia, um, uh, in Eastern Asia, Western Eurasia, Salutrian, Gravetian, Magdalenian, it goes on and on and on, plus Clovis and pre-Clovis that we had at the time. Um, and the, the correlation between a subset of Salutrian and pre-Clovis going into Clovis was phenomenal. Biface technologies that are virtually identical, three blade technologies that are virtually identical, a whole set of tool types that are virtually identical. There are some changes, there are some differences, but when you get down to it and start comparing it, 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 the amount of similarity is not just superficial. It's all the way down to how they chose to remove biface flakes, how they chose to make blade blades on different types of uh, cores and technologies. So there's a, a whole range of technologies. We're looking at whole assemblages, not cherry picking out, oh, this looks like mm-hmm. that, which we're often accused of doing. All they got to yeah, do that's is- important to Well, of course it is, because if, if, it, yeah. if you, if you want to do that, you can compare anything to anything and make it look the same. So- if people really want to understand what we're doing, they need to get to that book and look at the evidence that we present mm-hmm. because it is not simple. It's not um, you, uh, you one or two traits. It's not just overshot flaking as, as we've been claimed to, to or accused of claiming, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and so it's, it's a huge amount of, 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 of 
not only similarity, but identical stuff. Now, if that was at any other time in any other place, people wouldn't have any problem making the connection. And again, we've got to go back to using the same methodologies and the same application of, of uh, critique and interpretation. And when we do that, our conclusion is that, yes, Clovis originated out of uh, people that came here well before Clovis times, uh, settled in the eastern parts of, the, of North America, spread into South America, um, and they originated from Southwestern Europe. Um, and that's our hypothesis, and that we think the evidence is extremely strong. Well, I'll include a link to the book in the episode notes. Okay. I think there's an audiobook version of it now, too, isn't there? There is. Uh, but the audio version, I can't quite see yeah. how they, that works because there's no illustrations. How do you do that? Yeah. Oh, it doesn't come with a PDF with the with the figures or anything. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, um, it may. It may. I've never looked at it. Well, anyways, for people that like that, you know. Yeah. yeah. Anyways. One very interesting site at the moment is the Parsons Island site in Maryland. How has this site contributed to discussions of the Solutrean hypothesis? Well, there's a whole series of sites, uh, locations along the east coast of North America in the sort of middle Atlantic area. These have been investigated primarily by Darren Lowry, who grew up there. He started collecting artifacts when he was a kid. He's a waterman. In other words, his family... Uh, was on the water all the time, uh, clamming, uh, scallop fishing, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That's how he grew up, and he noticed that along the Chesapeake Bay there were all these different places where artifacts were being exposed by erosion, and of course that's a great place to go collect artifacts if that's what you're interested in. But his interest developed to the point where he was he actually went to university and got a degree, um, got a PhD, and and soils and, and geomorphology, the University of Delaware. And then he expanded that interest and started really detailed recording this, this material. And so he, he was the one that identified these sites. Um, the first one was that really he found materials in place in, in an eroding bank, absolutely in context, a place called Miles Point. And it had some very interesting artifacts associated with it that weren't typical of any other time period that he'd seen. And they came from a soil horizon that was clearly uh, old. And so his study of this, et cetera, et cetera, and it goes on and on a long story. Uh, but he kept at it. And one of the sites that he ultimately uh, investigated in, in greater detail and spent years and years and years watching, collecting, uh, recording documenting, etc., is, is called Parsons Island. And this is an island in the Chesapeake Bay that's heavily eroding. And he's documented the erosion over all the way from the uh, 19th century on. Um, and, and it's amazing how much is being lost annually. And he went out there and he, he found the same kind of uh, um, geological strata that they'd seen at Miles Point. Uh, Miles Point, by the way, was written off by uh, uh, people in charge of, of archaeology in the area and was was destroyed, basically. They allowed it to be destroyed because oh, it can't, there can't be anything older than Clovis, so it must not be important, so gone. Okay. Um, but Parsons Island had the same sort of things happening, and he was able to document a lot of artifacts that had eroded out at the bank. Every time there was a storm, huge checks, chunks of the bank would drop and, and get washed down. And there were all these artifacts that he was finding. But he also was finding artifacts still in place in the face of the bank. And so he and uh, a, a whole group of uh, people, scientists, as well as uh, amateur archaeologists, have documented this site uh, over, I don't know, 11 years, whatever it is in detail, go out almost every weekend. You have to get to it by boat. They put a lot of effort into it. Uh, and now there has been a small excavation that was done. Well, we did a small excavation through the Smithsonian in 2017, and there was another one done this summer. Uh, and more artifacts found in archaeological context, in good geological context, and dated again. 
So, and the assemblage of artifacts from the beach is very, very consistent. Um, it's not like there's multiple time periods represented at the site itself in the bank as it's eroded out. There haven't been younger things. And this material is coming out of strata that are dating both through carbon-14 and through OSL um, between 22 and 23,000 years ago. Now, this is Salutrian times, right? This is glacial maximum. Um, mm -hmm. And the, the reason it's so important is because it's been so well documented and materials have been found in absolute context. They're as good a context as virtually any Clovis site. So it's very, very difficult for, I mean, people will dismiss it. There's no question, but it's very, very difficult to be dismissed if you're taking a real objective scientific approach to uh, evidence. And so we've got Parsons Island is to me the smoking gun. And when I look at the archaeological materials, the artifacts, it's basically a Salutrian assemblage, right down to the types of artifacts and the technologies. And there's nothing else in the world that has that combination of stuff. It's the right time. It's just in the kind of odd place in relation to uh, Southwestern Europe, but not really if you think of the North Atlantic is, is being traversable and usable. So that's why Parsons Island is so important. And that would have been right on the, the edge of the glaciers at about that time, wouldn't it? Uh, they weren't far away. Uh, I, I think the, um, the moraine is up in uh, Long Island, up in that area. Uh, okay. So we're not that far south of there. Now, of course, with the dating gives us plus or minus a number of, uh, you know, a thousand years or whatever it is. So a lot can happen in that time. But um, yeah. And of course, where the site is now on the edge of the Chesapeake is not where it was in relation to the ocean 20 some thousand years ago. The, the, the beach line at that time was at least 80 miles east out on the edge of the continental shelf. So we're actually mm -hmm. looking at an upland site. Uh, Parsons Island was an upland site above the Susquehanna drainage. Um, okay. And so it, it seems like it's on the water now, but the water being there now has nothing to do with people paddling boats from Europe or anything like that. This is an upland site. So, <laughs> um, what are some other archaeological sites with potential connections to the Salutrian hypothesis? Well, okay. Uh, Basically, all of the, the sites that people have identified as older than Clovis in the eastern seaboard and, and eastern part of the United mm -hmm. States, uh, to me, indicate a, a Salutrian origin. So we can look at Meadowcroft, all of these sites that I mentioned along the Chesapeake. There's several other ones besides Miles Point, Oster, Oyster Cove, etc. And then you've got a site like the Johnson site, which is down in, in Nashville. Uh, you've got the... Um, uh, Page Ladson site in Florida, uh, possibly the Topper site in South Carolina. There's all kinds of series of sites along the East Coast that have remains that, to me, uh, clearly indicate an origin out of Salutrian uh, and mostly going trending toward Clovis. So these don't all date at 23,000. We're talking about sites that date from 19,000, 18,000, 16,000, all the way up to 15, 14,000. Mm -hmm. So people talk about, oh, Salutrin was over at 17,000. Clovis was until 13,000. There's 4,000 years in between. It can't be related. Well, we've got all these sites now that fall right in between. Okay. That, that you can track the time periods and, and the changes in, in the assemblages that eventually end up being Clovis. Mm -hmm. So we, again, we document all of this in our book. We put all the evidence in there uh, that we had up until that time period. There's more evidence that's come forward since then, but so far it hasn't really contradicted what we've been, uh, our hypothesis. Well, in recent research, DNA in modern and ancient populations has given some support to the Salutrian hypothesis. But before going into that, could you briefly explain why archaeologists are interested in mitochondrial DNA and Y-chromosome DNA to study ancient people? Yes, um, I can say a little bit about this. It's certainly not my area of expertise, and it's, uh, I rely very heavily on uh, people whose expertise it is. Um, but I've learned a little bit about it. Um, 
mtDNA, which is mitochondrial DNA, is a, a female lineage. So a daughter has the same mtDNA as the mother and all the way back through time. And the same with the Y chromosome is the male lineage. So this is, this is lineal uh, DNA. It's not population DNA, which is what we call mm -hmm. nuclear. So there are 16,000 base pairs of DNA in, in the lineal DNA. So all of that has to be taken into consideration and co various combinations of those things. And then what you get are, are called hap haplogroups. You get mutations in DNA that happen through time for various reasons. Um, and mtDNA is particularly interesting. Uh, it was sort of first brought to the fore in archaeology by, by uh, Douglas Wallace, who is identifying haplogroups and haplotypes within sub subdivisions and haplogroups mm -hmm. of mtDNA, mitochondrial DNA, um, because it, it tends to mutate very quickly and more or less at a steady rate. Now, that, that, that's controversial, but basically, if, if you assume or you, you conclude that there's a, a steady uh, mutation rate, then you can actually, we've got a, a DNA time clock, right? Mm -hmm. And that's why it's so important is because uh, nuclear DNA doesn't do that. Even the, uh, the, the Y chromosome DNA doesn't do that. It's more difficult. But the mtDNA seems to be good in, in terms of a clock. So what you can do that because of that is you can look at the mtDNA that you have, identify the haplogroup and the haplotypes, and then you can actually identify when a mutation occurred and where it occurred. Okay, So this is, this is really, really important stuff for archaeology. Now, if you're only looking at populations and you can't say when they happened or exactly where they happened, it's, it's, it's less applicable. Now, this is my understanding of everything. I may be getting, I'm sure some genetists will, will get online and tell you what they think. But um, so, so mtDNA uh, and, and where the, the, we claim the support comes from. Now, keep in mind that there is no Salutrian DNA. We have none, zero. Okay, so we can't say that a particular haplogroup or haplotype is Salutrian, right? We can't do that. We've got one example of what might be Clovis in North America, um, and we won't get into that too much because there's some real issues with whether or not this individual was Clovis or not. Um, but even if you accept that this person was Clovis, we have one example. So we're looking at populations uh, or, or lineages that are primarily modern, right? And, mm -hmm. and, and how you can track mtDNA through time. Uh, what, we're, what we proposed was that a particular haplogroup haplotype called X2A is potentially an indicator of Southwestern Eur Eurasian uh, origin. And, X2, X is, is a haplogroup of uh, mitochondrial DNA. X2 is a subdivision of that. And X2A is yet another subdivision of that. There's X2A, G, et cetera, et cetera. Now, I think all the geneticists so far have agreed that X2A originated, that the mutation happened in the Americas, specifically North America. Mm -hmm. If you use the same time clock that's being used for uh, a, uh, haplogroups A, B, C, and D, which are what most Native Americans have, uh, or subdivisions of that, haplo haplotypes of that. If you use the same time clock, that the origin of X2A in North America happened 18 to 20,000 years ago. Okay. Hmm. It's not something that was brought over by post Columbian Europeans, right? So our argument is, and we have it in ancient DNA, we actually have uh, X2A in ancient uh, human remains, including Kennewick, by the way. Um, mm. And the only alternative to our hypothesis is that X2 came all the way across Eastern Asia, left nothing behind, no trace behind at all, made it to the Americas and then became in, in, embedded in the in the, the 
populations here in the Americas, it still has to be older than Clovis. Even if it came through Asia, it still has to be over, older than Clovis for X2A occur. So the argument about it coming across East Asia is, is, is well, that's very nice. That's a huge distance to leave no, um, no descendants. Right. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's, it's just, it just makes more, it's, it's more logical that people would have come from the East to North Eastern North America than they came all the way from West of the Altai, which is way over <laughs> it's Western yeah. Siberia and left no trace in any population. Um, but that's the argument that, that people and some geneticists are making that there's this, this ghost population. We just haven't found it. Um, if that's not impossible, that is possible. But right now we have to work with the evidence that we have, not the evidence that we think might be there. We just haven't found it yet. Hmm. You know, that's what I hear all the time. Hmm. Well, we, we have origins for Clovis in a East Asia. We just haven't found it yet. Okay, well, fine. When we find it, then let's deal with it. <laughs> you know. So anyhow, yeah. that's 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 kind of yeah. my read. Well, I think it's good to maybe note as well that most of the X two haplogroups or subgroups are located in around that sort of the Middle Eastern area, the Eastern Mediterranean area, or in in living populations today. That's right, um, and the, the and and Western Southwestern Europe, yeah. 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 I think it's also interesting, as you, you noted, about the mutations occur at a certain rate. And when they occur, you can tell which was the the original one and then what was the sort of offshoot because That's the right. offshoot has one mutation different. Right. Uh, some of the people who, I guess, have criticized the hypothesis have noted that there is actually an X2 group in Asia. Yes. But why, why could that one not be ancestral? I know the answer, but... <laughs> yeah, we, we deal with this in our book as well. Uh, we've been working with Stephen Oppenheimer, who's uh, dealing with uh, genetics. He, he was basically, he, he wrote the book Out of Eden, which bring, was the first one that really brought the African origins to four, the four in terms of genetics. Um, there is a, a small pocket of X2 in the Altai region. Again, very, very Western Siberia. Uh, right where China, Kazakhstan, and 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 Russia come together over there in the Altai Mountains. Mm. However, the haplotype there is only twenty seven hundred years old. Okay, it's very hard to get Clovis at thirteen thousand years ago out of twenty seven hundred year old group. Okay, so mm -hmm. you have to go all the way over to the Caucasus to actually get an X group that's older than Clovis. So we're not talking coming from, when people use the term Siberia and Asia, you know, Asia goes all the way over to the Ural Mountains, right? Mm -hmm. So to, and, and Siberia goes all the way over to the Ural Mountains. So when, when people say, oh, they're in Siberia, that's like saying, comparing somebody in Kansas City to somebody in Brazil. I mean, you know, right. I mean, yeah. it's, it's you're using modern political boundaries to use to make your case. Uh, it just doesn't fly. So that Eurasian, that population of X in in quote unquote Asia, which is Western Asia, uh, is only twenty seven thousand twenty seven hundred years old. So you've got to you've got to figure out how you get people all the way from basically the Caucasus all the way across. Eastern Asia into North America, all the way to the east side of North America without leaving a trace. Right. And I think that's interesting as well, is that most of the people who today have X2A are very much in the, in the northeastern part of North America. It's, it's dominant in the Algonquian groups of, of North America, Chippewa, um, uh, and, and, and sort of the hunter-gatherer groups in North America. Um, that's where it's the most dominant. It's still not a dominant haplo haplogroup. It's it's a fairly small percentage of people have it. Now it's a little different with the Y chromosome. And again, remember we can't actually we don't have a time clock for Y chromosome. There's there's an inkling that people are starting to put one together, but 
So this is the male uh, mm -hmm. descent lineage. Um, there's populations in northeastern North America and Canada where between 80 and 100% of the males have that haplogroup. 80 to 100% of the males have that haplogroup. Okay. That's haplogroup R1b. R1b. Now, people have claimed, and now this is living populations, people have said, oh, well, that's post-contact. That's post-contact, mm -hmm. post-Columbian. Because we don't have a time clock, you can't, you can't reject that. Uh, however, if you look at the historical documentation, yes, there were uh, Western European people that could have brought uh, R1B to those groups and probably did bring some of it to those groups post-Columbian, especially the Basque people uh, who were whaling and, and, and fishing off of uh, Eastern North America, Northeastern North America before Columbus. Um, they could have brought that, but we're talking about a hundred percent replacement here of all males. All right. Mm -hmm. it, to get to a hundred percent R1B, it would have to be a hundred percent. And we know historically that just isn't the case. You know, yeah, there's some intermarriage, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and descendants that are part Basque, part European, et cetera, et cetera. But we're not talking about a whole population of, of, of males that are replaced. Now, if you look at the same time period, the post-Columbian time period, and you see people coming from the same places, uh, i.e. Spain, northern Spain, Basque, northern Spain, and other parts of Spain, and populating the South America and Central America and the Southern North America, and you look at the R1B there, and it's, it's 2 to 5%. Now, we know that there was a huge amount of, of uh, intermarriage uh, uh, mixture between the, the Spanish and all these populations in the southern parts of the Americas, and yet the the R1B is only in a very very small percentage. Where we know that historically a massive amount of inter intermixing, so it just doesn't equate. It, it, the only way it would work to get that kind of R1B in the northeastern groups is to have it be there before modern contact. That's our argument. <laughs> so, uh. Well, aside from napping techniques, what are some of the other cultural evidences that might support this hypothesis? Well, there, there's, there are several, but when you get into some of these other ones, um, they're, they're a little more subjective. Uh, they're, mm -hmm. they're a little harder to, to define, but uh, it's, it's kind of, for me as a flint napper, there's a, a real difference in perception of how you deal with stone to make tools between what we see in Northeastern Asia, microblades and inset tools, etc., made out of those microblades and full bifacialing and blade core technologies that we see in, in Southwestern Europe and the Salutrian. Uh, but along with that, there are other things. The Salutrian are, in, in terms of upper Paleolithic Western Eurasia, are considered by most uh, archaeologists, uh, prehistorians they're called over there, um, to be a, a, a different culture. Uh, they're, they're really different from what came before in the same area and what came after in the same area. They really did the things differently in many ways, not always. Uh, but their, their flaking technologies are quite different. This biface stuff didn't occur before in the Gravettian and didn't occur after in the Magdalenian. Uh, but there's also things they, they're, they're, um, credited with lots of innovation, the Salutrian, uh, spear throwers, uh, bow and arrow, uh, uh, proto-harpoons, uh, and, and any number of things. Heat treatment of flint. Now, we don't have that in the Clovis and pre-Clovis yet, so that, that may not carry over. And there's also things that the, some of the, some, again, this is important, some of the Salutrian we're doing that don't carry over. And it's really important to point these out as well. Uh, the, the amazing uh, cave art that we see during Salutrian times in parts of France and northern mm -hmm. Spain, we, we don't see that in any of the uh, pre-Clovis or, or uh, Clovis things here in the Americas. So that's something that either the group that came didn't have it or it dropped out. It's pretty hard to do cave art on the ice. Um, <laughs> but... Yeah. But nevertheless, you would expect something to carry through potentially if 
the parent group actually had that as their phenomenon. But remember, by Clovis times, that whole cave art uh, phenomenon had died out in Europe as well. It was gone. I mean, there, there weren't, you, know, you get to Magdalenian and then you get into post-Magdalenian times and it just disappears. It's gone. So why would we expect it to be over here later? I don't know. Um, so what we have to do is we have to objectively look at the criteria. We also have things like uh, Salutrian are noted for their, their preference for really exotic stones, um, quartz crystal, uh, jaspers, even obsidian that are bring, being brought in from great distances away, heat treating stone to change the colors. Now, this is something that we see in Clovis as well. Now, primarily Western Clovis, which is curious, not so much in the East and not so much yet in the pre-Clovis material that we have. So there may or may not be a, a continuity there. Mm. Um, caching, caching of large bifaces. You know, you make these oversized bifacial tools, tools as bifacial objects, uh, oversized to the point where they seem to be non-practical for use. And then you bury them in the ground and you leave them there. Now, that's a trait that we see in Salutrian. It's some, again, not all Salutrian, some Salutrian, and a trait that we see in, in Clovis, but not yet in pre-Clovis. So, again, mm. do these carry over? Don't they? Don't know. Um, but it is curious, the number of, quote-unquote, coincidences in behavior and, right. and outlook and approach to things it just gets overwhelming. And that's where we're coming from. It doesn't prove it. It doesn't prove a connection. It's just that if we had those, in fact, people use exactly these, these arguments to say, well, a Denali, which we find up in, in uh, archaeological uh, culture, quote unquote, that we find up in Alaska, is derived from Duktai over in Eastern Asia. And we're using the same arguments about similarities and differences and changes through time and ecology, etc., And people seem to have no problem with accepting Denali coming out of Duktai. And yet there, there's even less similarity and, and connection if you look at technology, etc., than there is between pre-Clovis, Clovis, and Salutrian. And yet no problem. Everybody agrees. So we, we've got to well, we'll get to that a little later. I think you still have some other <laughs> questions. <laughs> well, it's interesting you mentioned the cave art because you've also mentioned before about some of the cave art where there's at least one where there's a picture of an elk. And right. this may have been sort of connected with the idea that they were hunting on the ocean. Yes. Well, there's there there are Salutrian age, if you can believe the, the dating. Uh mm -hmm cave art that uh, have great auks. Uh, now, those are down on the Mediterranean in Coast Gare Cave, down on the Mediterranean, but this was glacial maximum, so there would have been auks down there probably. Uh, but there's also uh, images of walruses with spears in them, uh, seals with spears, possible nets, and even possible boats uh, that are depicted during this time frame. Uh, they're not common. They're much less common than depictions of, of animals, uh, 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 terrestrial animals. Uh, and But the, the other thing, if you, if you look at the, the, the cave paintings the, through, through that whole era, that time period, Gravidian on through Magdalenian, there's a lot of things that aren't depicted. Very, very few um, images of sort of daily life. Uh, very few images of people. Um, mm -hmm. So there... The, the presence or absence of something in the rock art doesn't necessarily imply everything that was going on, I guess is what I'm saying. Um, right. So, yes, we, we have uh, images of, of a whale. We have images of, of flatfish, the, you know, like uh, place and, and, and different deep sea fishes, uh, and, but also images of salmon. Um, but there's very few birds. There's very few small animals. We don't have images of uh, foxes and and uh, ground, uh, hedgehogs and you know all the other things that are out there. So they're being very selective in what they're putting in their art, quote unquote art, for whatever purpose it was. Um, so 
although there are images of, of maritime things like great auks, seals, walruses, and some indicate hunting, um, you know, again, that doesn't prove that these people are out on the ocean. Right. It just happens that those images are Salutrian and not before. They might be, they might be Magdalenian when we know they were out on the ocean. So, um, anyhow, yeah. <laughs> A lot of people have been upset by this idea. What are some of the main criticisms that people have put forward and do you have a response to these? Yes, of course. Um, some of these critiques have been very valid as far as I'm concerned, uh, where we've presented um, mm -hmm. ideas that don't have very strong evidence to support them. Uh, on the other hand, one has to step back for those a little bit and say, okay, if this was a different time place and place, would that criticism also apply? And, and one of them is boats. Uh, for our hypothesis to work, people had to have some kind of watercraft that they could maneuver and, and take in and out of the water. Uh, otherwise, you couldn't use the front of the ice very well. Um, and people say, well, show us the boats. There's no boats. That proves that they couldn't have done it, uh, which, is, which is the counter to that is, well, there's lots of places in the world where we know people got. Um, <laughs> yes. Polynesia, for instance. Show me an early Polynesian site that has a boat. Show me an early Micronesian site that has a boat. Boats just don't survive, and they're they're in in the and where boats are used. There's not a place where things actually preserve very well, and they're organic. So what what would you get? What would you find? Um, so we're it may happen one of these days, but the the lack mm -hmm. of physical belts doesn't mean people weren't out on the water. I mean that's just just absurd. So that's one. The other criticism that we get is, I mentioned earlier, oh, there's a 4,000-year gap between Clovis and, and Salutrian. Well, that gap is filled. Uh, uh, there's not an issue there anymore as far as I'm concerned. Oh, it's 1,400 miles. It's too far. They couldn't do it. Um, okay. The same people are very happy to have them coming across the, the, the Pacific, North Pacific coast and ice at the same time period, or, or actually a little later. But in the same kind of conditions, oh, they must have had boats over there. That's okay. So there's this emotional thing that's wrapped up in the in, in a lot of the critique. And um, critique is really, really important in archaeology and in science. And we need it. We need to constantly have this debate. But you can probably hear some frustration in in that there's so much irregularity in the way it's applied. If and I've asked some of some of our critics, and and uh, okay, if if Salutrian happened to be in northeastern Asia, would you have any question whatsoever that it was the origin of Clovis? Uh, no, if it was there, uh, same time, same everything. So the only problem is location. Well, uh, no, no, there's other problems. Genetics, you know, they go on to other things. But it's like, I don't get it. <laughs> it and, and, you know, we, we've got to move forward on these things. And if ultimately it, it doesn't pan out, fine. It doesn't pan out. But if, if, if people want to critique it, they need to approach it the same way they would approach any critique of any archaeology, whether it's a thousand years old, whether it's 10,000 years old, whatever it is, mm -hmm. using the same kinds of evidence, using the same kinds of, of, of deductions and interpretations. And it, 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 as long as you're willing to have double standards for things that are extraordinary, um, well, we're never going to get very far. Right. I think it's important to investigate and whether it turns out that you know, it was wrong or there was a big flaw or or maybe even something else comes out of it. I think the important part is investigating, even if a small amount of evidence comes up. It's a valid thing to investigate different stuff and say, well, is it or or isn't it? Yeah, and, and, yeah. and how do we decide that? Well, we decide it by, right. by applying the methods and techniques and approaches that we do across the board. You don't use special ways of looking at things just because they don't fit your paradigm. <laughs> well, now that you're more or less retired, you're 
Professor Emeritus. Uh, what are you working on or what are your plans for the future? Oh, well, people ask me, you say, you're retired. What are you doing? I said, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm retired from bureaucracy right. and administrators. I'm not retired from life or from archaeology. Mm -hmm. um, archaeology is our, my passion. Um, I'm doing lots of different things. I'm still sort of uh, marginally uh, associated with this whole early uh peopling of the Americas. Uh, other people are doing the, the basic evidence gathering, which I think is really important that other people are, are taking this up. Um, and that's great, but I, I'm involved in that. I'm going to be doing a detailed analysis of all the artifacts from Parsons Island this winter. Um, I'm also looking, I, I'm also working very closely with uh, colleagues in Brazil, Uruguay, and, and Argentina, looking at uh, early uh, archaeological evidence in those places. Uh, so I'm down there often, not so much last year, of course. Um, I'll be down in Brazil again, in Uruguay, uh, working with people down there. Um, so I'm involved there. I'm doing a lot of uh, flint napping, flint napping workshops where I'm uh, teaching people about how stone tools are made and therefore how you apply that knowledge to analysis and mostly these workshops have been in South America, but also in China, uh, India, and a few other places. Um, and then I'm, my, my primary archaeology, believe it or not, is actually Southwestern Pueblo and archaeology here in Colorado. Uh, and we just finished uh, a number of months of field work here. So um, I'm keeping pretty busy um, and still enjoying it, still having students, but I don't have all the bureaucracy and and all the nonsense that goes along with academia. So yeah, I guess a lot of archaeologists actually never really retire. I think they just stop collecting a salary, but yeah, <laughs> the the rest of the work goes on. Uh, <laughs> uh. Do you have any advice for archaeologists who are interested in researching the peopling of the Americas? Yeah, I, I, I've alluded to it all the way through here, is um, whenever you're getting involved in something that, that's controversial, which a lot of archaeology is anyhow, no matter what you're doing at some level, uh, you've got to be willing to, to take the heat um, and be, be criticized and critiqued. I mean, that's just science. That's just what we do. Um, try to break out of preconceptions, uh, which therefore influence how you go about things. Like you say, if there's just a little bit of evidence, it, de it deserves investigation. Um, don't get put off by people saying, oh, we know that's not the case. We know that didn't happen. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, try to apply archaeological method, theory, technique the same way to something that might be older than you think it should be as you would to something that's 500 years old. And this is, this is really where we've kind of lacked um, the, the input uh, is, is people that are willing to stand back and just use that evidence and, and quote unquote, which is a very popular thing to say these days, follow the science and, mm -hmm. and, and let, let the evidence speak and, and, don't suppress evidence or don't ignore evidence just because it doesn't fit a paradigm. Um, and if you're going to be looking at the peopling of the Americas or any place else in the world, you've got to take this approach. Otherwise, we've already finished that. We don't need to do any more work. We already know the answers. And if that's the case, then archaeology becomes irrelevant. So um, just keep at it. And we, we really, really do need, uh, quote unquote, new blood in, in, in this whole thing. And, and, uh, and yeah, I'd, I'd really encourage folks to do it, keeping in mind that you're maybe jeopardizing uh, academic careers in, in some way. Um, that, you know, there's going to be resistance and it's, it's changing. Um, you know, I've given given talks about this hypothesis all over the world. And, and actually, although I keep hearing that 99% of archaeologists don't accept the possibility, um, that's not been my experience. Uh, South America is, is, is 
the people down there have been very open. Colleagues have been very open to these ideas. Uh, Western Europe, except for Spain and, and uh, parts of France, although France is changing, uh, have been very resistant to even thinking about this kind of a concept. Hmm. But everywhere else I've gone, and I've given talks in East Asia, Central Asia, all over Europe, all over the Americas, and it tends to have a fairly good reception because people can see the, the, the amount of and the depth of evidence that we're bringing to bear on this idea. Um, so don't be discouraged mm -hmm. by some very loud critique. Um, just get on with it. <laughs> yeah, some good advice in general. Well, this is a very interesting subject for discussion. Thanks for taking the time to tell us about the Solutrean Hypothesis and your research on the topic. I'm interested to see how the subject progresses and what everyone learns about it in the future. Well, you're, you're very welcome. It's, it's nice to have a, a, a venue like this, an opportunity to, to reach out to some, some more folks with these ideas. And remember, this is not a story that's being told. This is a hypothesis that's being investigated. Right. Well, thanks for joining us. Have a nice day. All right. You're welcome. I hope to see you soon, Otis. Yep, you too. All right. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Cafe podcast. For more information and news, check out our website or social media pages. Links can be found in the episode notes or simply by searching online for Cafe podcast. If you have any questions or comments for the presenters or guest speakers, we'd love to hear from you. Until next time, I'll leave you with a quote from Yacht Punksep. When scientific conversations cease, then dogma rather than knowledge begins to rule the day. <laughs> <laughs>